This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 216, brought to you in association with Smart and theenlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Barb Landon, CEO of Crosslake Technologies, whose strapline is, quotes, private equity and management teams, trusted advisor for technology, unquotes, to discuss due diligence. Amazingly, we still keep coming across topics, even though the LFP is now in its ninth year, that we haven't actually thrashed to death already. Due diligence is a topic that few of you out there may have come across but it's an absolutely vital one to know about. Not least of which, as the most common case is that VCs, or PEs for that matter, funding offers are always dependent on due diligence. Rather like you offering to buy a house, but this is conditional on having a good survey first. There is a parallel here with another funding phase change, that of IPOing. As we've heard in prior LFPs on how to IPO, brackets, and if you ever want to look up a topic on the London FinTech podcast, go to the website, there's an episode page and just find on that page. So if you want to find IPOs, just search for IPOs and you'll find the old ones. Unsurprisingly, the companies who get themselves in shape well ahead of deciding to IPO fare best. The same applies to due diligence. Yet, the real politic in the busy life of startups, scale-ups and IPOing companies and busy founders is that plenty of FinTechs and other techs for that matter leave the, shall we say, internal tidying up of the office to roughly the day before, before the inspector comes round, leading to, unsurprisingly, a suboptimal experience. But anyway, that's the context. What actually is due diligence? Although I say few of you have had to deal with it, perhaps, I'm sure most of you are aware of the phrase, but if this was an exam question that you're asked to sit down on, even if you could give a one to five minute answer, could you actually give a one hour answer? I certainly couldn't. How does it work? And how should you, if you find yourselves approaching one yourself or your company, best prepare for it? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Bart. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. And so in terms of kicking things off, you're somewhere in America where I'm not that clued up on the weather, but I assume the weather is a, a lot better than when we are here, although it's quite mild. But you're also saying that in previous incarnations, you've lived in plenty of countries of the world. So um, uh, maybe you get your globe out and, and, and spin it around and give us a bit of a flavour for what the sort of highlights and, and lowlights were. And, and of course, just if you want a word of advice, I'd recommend saying that where you are now is a highlight. <laughs> it definitely is a highlight. I, I come to you today from sunny Charlotte, North Carolina uh, in the US where it's a beautiful fall day here. So we're getting a protracted fall and and trying to enjoy every minute of it. But yes, I have been a bit of a nomad. Maybe I can't stay in one place too long, but yeah, I've done stints in uh, Southeast Asia. I've done stints in Dubai, Perth, Sydney. So certainly bounced around a lot, uh, certainly a lot for, uh, you know, a a country boy from the state of Kentucky, (laughs) where not many people have traveled as much. Um, So I've had a great fortune of of bouncing around a little bit and seen a lot of great places. They're all highlights in their own route. Um, So it's been a it's been a fun journey and a very fortunate career. And which countries in Southeast Asia? I spent most of my time in the Philippines, in Manila, but have certainly traveled extensively throughout the region. Yes, I remember my first far off trip 
long, long time ago when uh, I hadn't visited, uh, ventured far afield. And I was off to visit my then girlfriend from college who was spending some time in Japan teaching English. And it was via the Philippines. And it was immensely scary in that um, I flew to um, Manila and I'd never been somewhere so far away. And I arrived in Manila, went through the sort of check-in. And this is, oh, decades ago. And this is basically 40 years ago. I walked down to the, the airport wheeling my suitcase was immediately assaulted by um, three gentlemen, all of whom grabbed the suitcase and said, ah, you're coming with us. <laughs> and it was pouring down with rain, at which point all the lights failed and gunshots appeared. <laughs> so this was my first experience decades ago as a, as a youngster in terms of the, the faraway places about which I'd barely heard of and knew even little, which was uh, incredibly, incredibly scary, actually. And uh, going back to algorithms, we'll talk a little bit about technology and due diligence in a second, but uh, I just intuitively trusted the guy with the jacket. So I went with the guy with the jacket. <laughs> well, Manila can be a, uh, a chaotically beautiful place. Um, I spent a, a good bit of time there and it's full of a lot of energy, but most importantly, some really, really wonderful people. But it is a big, big chaotic city at times. So uh, yeah, well, I very much enjoyed my time there. When the lights go out and it's in the pouring rain and it's your first sort of trip abroad as, as a kid. The rainstorms can be intense. The, the rain. <laughs> anyway, it was so freaking out. This chap did take me to the hotel. I'm, I'm very glad to say. And when I got there, I shoved, some, shoved a chair under the, uh, <laughs> under the handle, promptly went to sleep. Next morning, of course, you, you wake up and uh, I've had lesser experiences, but there have been some similar ones in Nom Pen turning up late at, at night. It's been a bit freaky. Anyway, the usual thing, you have a good night's sleep, you wake up the next morning and it seems perfectly normal there. Yeah. I had time before the flight to um, Tokyo to uh, go on a, a little coach tour, which is very unlike me these days. But anyway, and it's beautiful because we, we drove around this coach tour and we saw in particular the American Cemetery, yes. which was just a yes. fantastic vista. I said this is decades ago, so there's much less sort of development th than there is now. And yes, it was... Uh, Really nice, but uh, never been there since, actually. It is a beautiful part of the city. It's it's obviously tragic as an into its existence, but it's a, a beautiful cemetery. It's one of the largest uh, military cemeteries, if I, if I remember correctly, at least American military cemeteries uh, outside the U.S. So it's a, it's a beautiful city, and, and I really enjoyed it. We also, I mean, since in Dubai, Perth, and Sydney, they all had their own little bit of flavor and journey, but very glad to be what is now back home uh, in, in North Carolina and with my family here. So. It's been a good journey. Yes, we were walking around a, a churchyard the other the other weekend, and it was an ancient church in, in this country, centuries and centuries. I mean, over a thousand years old. And just looking at the gravestones, and uh, there's a realization that people don't do that much these days. There isn't so much in in London. But if you walk around, you do get some connection to the ancestors, and you do realize countless generations have gone before you, and countless generations have really struggled to give us what we have today. And of course, the trend with social media and all that is to criticize a whole lot of it. But um, with things like the war cemetery, it, it's a permanent reminder, hopefully a permanent reminder, that countless of our forefathers literally gave their lives in order that we may have what we have today. But anyway, so what was it career-wise that led you to go around the world? I assume it wasn't uh, busking, or was it a different, a more sophisticated version of busking, perhaps? I started my career in a bit of the corporate world, which took me on early phases of that journey. But for many years, I was at uh, the advisory firm McKinsey & Company, uh, where I was a partner for many years. And I kind of sat at the intersection of our private equity and transformation practices, which was the, the root of a lot of the international journey, at least. Ended up being the managing partner for Bruce Stanton in the, in the Carolinas office here in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, before moving over to Cross Lake about two years ago. Oh, excellent. Yes, I've heard of McKinsey. I think they're quite good at doing what they do, from what I know quite well. 
connected. So what was it then that led you from having a very pucker job at a very pucker firm um, who presumably uh, pay you as well as letting you work in different places around the world that led you one day to wake up and say, oh, I know what, I'll go and join Crosslake and be chief executive around there. Well, what was it that led you to your new career, new direction? Yeah, it was uh, an opportunity I simply couldn't pass up. I, I can't say enough wonderful things about my experience at the firm or McKinsey as it's known. Um, but Crossick was acquired two years ago by or invested in uh, by a private equity firm that I knew um, and who had approached me to see if I would have an interest in helping lead that business. And um, I very, very much believe in what we're trying to do here and at the intersection of the investment world and the technology world and that that intersection is going to be pivotal to the success of both sectors, <laughs> both the tech sector and the private uh, investment sector and wanted to plant myself right in the middle of it and uh, have had the great privilege of leading this organization uh, alongside many talented colleagues. And we've now put together uh, Crosslake is now actually a collection of what was originally four businesses two years ago into, into one umbrella to frankly try to be the preeminence firm serving tech investors and their management teams. So uh, it was simply too good of an opportunity to pass up and I've enjoyed every minute. Well, we'll hear more in detail about Crosslake in the dessert course, but just to give listeners a bit of a feel at the moment, in terms of numbers of staff or number of countries you're operating in, roughly speaking, what kind of uh, magnitude is Crosslake? Yeah, so we operate on six of the seven continents. We have roughly 300 folks in our organization, and we serve about 500 private equity firms and their management teams. So hundreds of more companies in addition to that under those portfolios. We really focus on tech and tech investors uh, and technology-related questions. About half of our work is on the due diligence, buy side, sell side of a transaction, and then half our work is helping management teams drive value through technology. In Europe alone, we have about 50 colleagues in, in Europe and we serve you know, over 100 private equity firms in the region. So good presence uh, in Western Europe as well. Oh, excellent. Well, I hope the listeners out there appreciate, I was about to say my hard work, but perhaps it's my good fortune in terms of uh, being introduced to you guys, um, because clearly you know a little bit more than a thing or two about due diligence, of which we will in a short time just be able to barely scratch the surface. But let's start with the absolute basics. As with many things, if you understand the essence of something, then everything is kind of an elaboration on that. As I said in the introduction, I doubt there's a listener out there that hasn't heard the phrase due diligence. Equally, I imagine that actually quite a small percentage of the listeners have been through a process of due diligence. I myself have never been through a process of due diligence. Going back to my merchant banking days, corporate finance were always doing due diligence on something or other. And one of my favorite due diligences was when we floated Gazprom and somebody was sent out from us along with Waterhouse to Coopers to go to Russia and literally, pretty literally actually, I think, count the oil wells <laughs> the Gazprom had, and they never came back. We never saw them in the company again. So we, don't, and li we literally don't actually know what happened to them. So what actually is due diligence from the perspective of a professional that knows all about it or as much as you know, is possible to know about it? How would you define due diligence? I think at its, at its sim simplest level, it's a prospective investor's attempt to pragmatically understand the risk and the value that they're trying to backstop. And you can really think of it as they've got three things in, the, in their head as they embark on due diligence. One is, what is the risk I would be undertaking here? Two, how much value can I create for the price that I pay, right? And three is, 
more compliance oriented, right? Uh, you know, as a firm, am I checking all the boxes that I need to check to ensure that I can get the proper coverage or insurance or pass my investment committee? But really, it's that risk and value lens that is the focus of, of due diligence. Uh, now, what that means changes a little bit by deal, by process, by size of firm, etc. But really, it is about mitigating risk and getting a very clear lens on the value that you can create. I see. Well, starting with the basics or 30,000 feet overview from quite a height, is it sort of broadly true to say that if you're a VC or, or PE firm, the process is somebody knocks on your door, metaphorically speaking, and maybe you have a meeting with them, and if you have a meeting, they come in with a PowerPoint, and you see a couple of people, and they spin you a story, they tell you a narrative, they show you some slides, they say, oh yeah, our client growth is 99% a day, and da 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 and you, know, you, you hear a narrative, and you know, they may, may have some ideas of valuation, and all that kind of stuff, but that at that stage, all you have is, quotes their words for it, it's their narrative, and that rather like a survey on the house, and, and please do correct me to the extent that that's a misleading metaphor, it's a bit like you see a house, you walk around it, if you're not a property expert, you think, oh, that's nice, you know, nice swimming pool, 15 bedrooms, blah, 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 it looks quite a big garden. Oh, I like that, and oh, they want, you know, a million for it, or two million, or whatever, and you think, oh, yes, well, that's sort of reasonable. But at that stage, you need somebody who actually goes and checks out everything kind of works, and everything is as per the narrative and that, so, you know, I may look at a house and think that's great, but they come back and say, well, actually, it never had planning permission or there's tree roots under here that, you know, or, or the electrics are 50 years old and they all need replacing. And, you know, it's this kind of platonic abstraction or sort of narrative spin you get from the sort of founders who are trying to raise money top down. But the bottom up is, is what it is. Forget narratives or whatever. You go around and check that, you know, you said you've got about 300 staff. Well, I'm sure you have. But if I was going to give you money, one of the due diligence things would be checking that you do have 300, not 30 staff. I mean, at a very trivial level before we get sophisticated. I think that's absolutely a fair metaphor in terms of a house inspection. I, I think that the one nuance that I would add is it's not intended to be a gotcha exercise, right? By the time a due diligence is initiated, both parties, in most cases, have an affinity for one another in the form of an investment thesis or an interest in the investors, you know, not only their capital, but the belief in that team as an investor that they would add value to the business. And so there's some kind of mutual interest there. And so, yes, there is all of the bottoms up of validating that things are as they are claimed to be, right? But in many cases, it's actually just trying to create a transparent set of facts that both parties share an understanding for, one, and two, starting to think about what are the key questions that the investor and the management team need to align on in terms of post-investment creating value together, right? And what are those three, four questions? And we can talk about some of those, but what are those three, four questions that they're focused on in terms of the value orientation? And I think that's probably one of the maybe not big shifts, but is growing in importance, right? I think the perception is that it's an all of a risk exercise, whereas in reality, in many cases or many work streams, particularly the ones we embark on, it's actually a value-oriented exercise as well, which is, yes, what risks, what technical risks do I have in this? Or is there a, a huge presence of technical debt? Or do I have an architectural barrier in front of me? But also, how am I going to create a scalable product, right? How am I going to actually differentiate versus my competitors? Those are, those are prospective and value-focused 
uh, exercises. And that's just as important to an investor as mitigating or understanding the, the potential risks and pitfalls. Excellent. Well, you've already corrected my understanding, even at the simplest of levels, but it's a point well taken, which is that a well-conducted due diligence process looks not only at the downside, but at the upside and gives one insight into both of those. And one thing that just occurs to me, I said at the beginning that from the perspective of fintechs, the, the, the time they're most likely to see it is when VCs are doing round B, C, D and E, and they offer you some money and they come around and do check the numbers add up and, and, and all that kind of thing. But the other thing that occurs to me is that this isn't necessarily the case if you take over a public company, is it? Which seems a little bit anomalous, either or I'm wrong. And, and the thing that's in my mind is, let's forget the politicization and the current, current world everything's politicised, but there's a, there's a gentleman you may have heard of called Mr Musk, who wants to buy a company that you may have also heard of called Twitter. And there was a, a, a long spat over sort of bot accounts or, or something like that. Now, were Twitter to be a private company, and for the sake of argument, were you guys to be advising him several months ago and he made an offer, then presumably that offer would have been contingent on the due diligence having been done. And you go around and you do due diligence and say, well, this is this and this is that and that's the other. And, and actually the bots are 11.2% or 99% or, or, or whatever it is. So just on this last super big picture, before we, we dive into some of these silos you're talking about in terms of risk uh, and value, the subsections within the um, due diligence handbook, as it were, it's a rather curious thing, and it has led, of course, to various lawsuits that one can think of at the top of one's head, that if you buy a public listed company, if you offer to buy it, you don't, question mark, get the chance to do due diligence on it. You bid $50 billion and then later you find out, oh shit, it was only worth 10. How does that work? But I mean, is that the case that they're the, the accountants have put themselves on the line because the accountants have validated that, you know, they, there are so many oil wells, there are so many staff, there are so many bots. How, how does that work just from that dimension? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't want to speculate on, on any specific <laughs> deal, so I, I'll keep my comments to more of a generalities. And, and, and candidly, it is very different in, in a public take-private. I think one of the greatest and most common differences is public companies disclose a lot more publicly <laughs> by the nature of their status. And so there is a lot more that is publicly available or readily discoverable in that kind of setting than maybe in many cases where we spend the majority of our time, which are private companies that may or may not have had institutional capital before, but don't have the same public disclosures that maybe a, a public institution or a publicly listed business would. So, yeah, you know, Every deal is different. Diligence requirements by the investor are different. And so I, I don't want to pretend to speculate what, what it's been in that case or, or, or not, but it ranges quite a bit, right? Some investments, the bigger they are, obviously, in many cases, the more risk one may be taking, but their appetite for diligence or their requirement for diligence is going to vary deal by deal quite a bit. Once again, I think it comes back to that risk and value equation. And then a, a public take private is they're just starting from a very different place. I, I think if I do go back to your house analogy on the value side of it, one other point to draw out, which is if you were a property investor, how would you think about it, right? You're not only thinking about the risks, you're thinking about how are you going to make money on this property. And so you start to think about you know, could you add on square meters to the house? You know, how can you upgrade the house, et cetera? Because unless you just plan to live there for the rest of your time and let the market <laughs> dictate the journey, you're actually trying to figure out how to create value by owning the house. And therefore, you're going to look at ways to improve that house. And investors in businesses are, are no different. They want to understand the downside very, very well, but they're also already thinking about how they create the upside. Excellent. Well, 
in terms of the takeaway from the, the super big picture then, I think the one thing I'm, I'm, I'm getting from that is that depending on the particular context, and contexts are always varying, you may get a certain degree of due diligence, a greater or lesser. All due diligences are not the same. There isn't one standard kind of process. There isn't one kind of standard handbook that gets applied in all cases. And I think it's, you know, not to push the, the property metaphor, but I have a very simple brain that can only think in simple terms. I think there are, as I recall, different levels of survey you can have done on a house, for example. You can go for, metaphorically speaking, the gold, the silver and the bronze. Yes, one more thing interjected. You can think about different ways of, of selling a house, right? And, and there are different processes to do that. And the more competitive that process is, the more the buyer has to position themselves, right? They may have a minimum standard that they must cross for their own fiduciary responsibility and their own level of comfort. And that may vary by buyer. But the more competitive it is, the more you're going to try to position yourself as the easy buyer, right? Uh, and you see different financing, you see different terms, you see different closing periods, etc. right? And the same is true in the investment world, right? The, the more competitive a deal is, it can have an effect on the timeline, the diligence, the depth, etc. But all buyers are going to have their minimum floor that they are, you know, unwilling to proceed forward unless they unless they meet, and that's their own internal threshold. Excellent. Okay, so coming down to three thousand foot level, having said that all due diligences are not the same. If you are going to due diligence something tomorrow, you're presumably at the highest level in your contents book of the the people below you who go and due diligence things, have a bunch of chapters, as you say, risk, value, tech, blah, 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 blah. So what are the major chapters? I mean, you mentioned sort of the risk and the value, but there's also the question of checking out the finances, the legals, the commercials, the technical. I mean, it's as complex as you want to make it. But just again, to enable a listener to have a more refined understanding of the due diligence, what are the main sections of, of the project, as it were? Let's say you've got sort of a team on each of them. How many sort of sub-teams will you have within the overall team to look at different strands within the business? Let's just call it what, on a median deal you do. Let's forget about the variation. Some are bigger or some smaller. Correct. Yeah. So typically there are probably five or six work streams. So financial, which would be classically referred to as kind of the Q of E, which is the quality of earnings. Legal, which obviously covers that side and the spectrum of that. It's commercial or strategy, loosely referred to, which would cover you know how big is the market, how do customers feel about you, where are the pockets of growth. Then there's technical, which is where we spend our time. It's not only uh, intended for software businesses. In many cases, it's just every business to some degree relies on technology, and we can we can go deeper there. ESG would be another one. Operational. Once again, these a little bit depend. Operational depends on the type of business, uh, particularly you know if it's a heavy industrial business or a retailer or something. How efficient are your operations? And then finally, one of the ones that we believe is going to emerge quite rapidly here is what we would call product diligence, which is probably most applicable in a SaaS or software-driven business, but is how differentiated is the product itself that you're building. And so those would be the five or six chapters or work streams, however you want to refer to it, in a pretty classic diligence. And their relative emphasis and importance will vary by the deal. I see. So most of those, as you say, are self-explanatory. You, you want to check the numbers add up, going back to my obsession, but also the opportunity for earnings and say the marketplace and various businessy things like that. I can imagine, roughly speaking, how one would approach those and equally the commercial. The one you mentioned there, which is obviously very dependent on whether you're buying Ford Motor Company or, I don't know, Revolut's App Bank, is the whole technical slash technology slash IT. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of difference between 
making motor cars and, and having an app bank. So how would you drill into that area if we sort of zoom into technical due diligence? I mean, I've, I haven't really heard the phrase very much um, before. And uh, if I have a, a nightmare tonight <laughs> and I've suddenly been appointed to a job to do technical due diligence, I'll wake up in a cold sweat because I can spell it with a bit of a bit of a help from a dictionary, but I, I wouldn't be able to go much further than that. Yeah. So l- let's start with, I guess, what it means. And that is very simply, how much does your technology paradigm enable your business to create value, right? That varies a lot by the type of business. And I'll loosely categorize them into three. One would be a pure play software business. Your function as an institution is to build software that people buy. That is often the most intense one because that is the product. That is the business in many cases. And we can talk about that. The, the other end of the spectrum would be, let's call it a services or manufacturing or retail business, which in many cases relies on enabling technology that they procure to make their business better, faster, smarter, right? And so that examples would be ERP systems, HR systems, inventory systems, et cetera, email and the like, right? Which may, many businesses rely on more and more every day. I mean, to some degree, every business is a tech business at this point. And so the complexity of their back office systems and enabling systems and how it fuels their business is the scope there. And then in the middle is what we would call tech-enabled services businesses or tech-enabled businesses. In many cases, these businesses do something else. They, they sell a service in many cases, but they've actually built a piece of proprietary software that makes their business better and that they believe is differentiated from their competitors. So they are actually, in many cases, also building software. It's almost rare at this point to find a business, at least in the world in which we play, that hasn't gone out and built its own software to some degree. Uh, And so getting an understanding of what it is and how it creates value in the business and how it will continue to create value in the business is really our remit. Yes, and um, the more you speak, the more I can see that, in a sense, this is quite contiguous with uh, management consulting. It's the same kind of mentality, and you can drill down as far as the budget goes. I mean, just on that point about drilling down and... um, having said before that taking over public companies is a different ball game. But let's say you have a client who is immensely wealthy. They'd have to be immensely wealthy, as you'll, you will see by the example coming up. And let's say they wanted to buy, for example, Citigroup and take it private. When I last looked, Citigroup was order of a magnitude, a third of a million employees in countless countries around the world. Now, in principle, and this may come back to the point you made earlier about timelines and, and competition and market constraint, in terms of we want the deal within a month or three months or whatever, there is, I would have thought, no way to fully, fully 100.00% due diligence a business of a third of a million people spread around the entire world. Now, that, I, that is an extreme case, and I take it merely to make the point that even in the median case, there is a certain degree to which, I mean, you guys are quite happy to be paid, I'm sure, to, to due diligence is lasting for years, and there's always more that you can be doing. There's more so that you can be checking out, you can get lower and lower in the organisation. But in terms of, as it were, how, how far down the organogram one goes or how, how detailed one goes in terms of, like, do you want a, a low-res JPEG or a super high-res JPEG, how does that parameter work? Because there, there is no, as I say, there is no full answer. I mean, if you're on the board of Citigroup or HSBC, on the board, you can have no full understanding of a massive complex business like that. And even if you employ a team of 100 people, they'll still not be able to work it out by the end of the year. So what is this practical parameter about how far one goes down? Yeah, so it's really a conversation with our clients, in many cases, who are the investors. In the case of a diligence, our clients are the investors. And it's a 
it's a question around or a discussion around what are the key areas of risk that you're most attuned to and that your firm wants the deepest understanding that you can. Two, what are the main investment thesis questions that you have? So I'll give you an example. Is the product scalable, right? Is there a lot of tech debt? Is the product differentiated? Does the engineering team write code efficiently and effectively? These are loose examples of questions and getting aligned on the three, four, five of those, that gives us a really good starting point for what is the threshold of pragmatism that you need to cross here to answer the really, really important questions, right? And then the process dictates a little bit about there's an optimal amount of time, right? And as you said, more is always more kind of to some degree, but there's a a pragmatic reality of how much access, where the process is, where we are in the process, and, and frankly, how much confidence or conviction or detail the client wants. And so what we're trying to do is prioritize our time so that we're creating the highest level of understanding or the best level of understanding against the key areas our client cares the most about given the process. Now, the other value is we've done 3,500 of these in the last few years. There is a pattern recognition to diligence that does not draw conclusions, but gives you fertile understanding of where to dive deeper. And so as you spend time with management teams, as you spend time with investors, having done you know, as an individual, hundreds of these is a really important skill to understand where things don't necessarily add up or where you would want to spend more time to make sure you understand so that you can frame a risk or a, or an opportunity in the appropriate way. So I think it's a mix of getting aligned with the client on what are the most important risk and value oriented lenses that they're focused on. And then two, having the skill and the experience of having done diligence in many, many cases. Because to back to your question, there is no perfect tech. There is no such, there's no perfect business. There's no perfect tech. And so it's the pragmatic relative judgment that's really important here. Because our job is not to assess, is this perfect? Our job is to assess, does this meet your needs from a risk and a value-oriented and from our lens, technically, would seem like a viable investment based on what you want to do with the business and where you want to create value. Yes, it's interesting. It's probably another podcast entirely, actually, but it may well be that the, the US being more savvy in entrepreneurialism and tech as a whole has a slight slant on, on this one, which is that quite often the one I've heard that the phrase due diligence in the UK, it leans more in the direction of an audit. <laughs> Hence my sort of coming at it from sort of, oh, just check they're doing their sums right and just, just check they have the right number of staff and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in America, it may focus more on the upside. Relatively speaking, we're talking 40, 60 and 60, 60, 40s here. Now, one thing that is a context here, which is thinking back to corporate finance transactions back in the day, one of the challenges was that there were often a whole orchestra of players with different angles and, and potential conflicts. You'd have your corporate finance house, you'd have your accountants, you'd have your lawyers, you'd have your corporate broker and, you know, late in a process at M&A on something like that, and especially on things like Gazprom or Pakistan Telecom or whatever, also remember that one very well. You've got all these players and, as you know, the, the one thing that senior corporate financier did it was trying to sort of, you know, conduct the orchestra. Right. And one thing which is a bit implicit, I should have perhaps made it clearer before, which is that it's not a question that someone comes along and offers to buy some company for the sake of argument, 100 million, and then says, hey, buy, you know, you, you guys know this do deals stuff backwards. Can you go and do it just to check it's worth 100? No, no, no. There'll be a whole team, whole process, perhaps corporate financiers, perhaps in-house 
uh, analysts or whatever, who in the first place will have thought of buying Citigroup, metaphorically speaking, or whoever, and you come along later when they've already, in principle, got a desire to do something. Is that true? And if so, is there a dynamic between the kind of initiating team whose quotes idea it is, you know, we decided to buy this, and you guys who are coming along completely from fresh, out of the blue, going, well, actually, okay, I'll just sort of see what this looks like. Absolutely. But I would start by saying every deal is a snowflake, <laughs> and therefore every process is a bit of a snowflake. And so the sequence, which you're alluding to, yes, in, in almost all cases, the investor and the management team of the, of the potential investment uh, have gotten to know each other before we or anyone, any other provider would enter the equation. So there's a familiarity there. As to how investor sequence work, different firms approach it differently, different deals approach it differently. And in some cases, you're right, they spend more of the time up front ensuring that from a financials perspective, you know, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that there's no major legal or, or compliance red flags. And then they bring in more of the commercial and technical or operational advisors. In other cases, we have clients that bring us in from the very beginning, right? Which is, is this product scalable? Is it differentiated? Is it defensible? Is this a unique piece of technology that we would want to bet on? And then we'll figure out if everything else is okay. And so different firms have different lenses on what they consider the sequence or the stage gates of the process. And in some cases, the process dictates or the business dictates that it kind of all runs in parallel. And yes, that can be a lot. These are often somewhat compressed exercises. They are often somewhat intense exercises. But I think when done well, they are both coordinated in sequence and coordinated amongst work streams or chapters. Excellent. Okay, well, just wrapping up, as I teased the listeners at the beginning, for those of them uh, that are undergoing due diligence now or may in the future, or at least it can stick in their mind uh, if in the future they're going across one for, oh, hang on, what, what was uh, Bar saying on London FinTech podcast five years ago? They can uh, check it out. I did suggest that, like most things in life, if you think about it beforehand, it tends to be a bit better than sort of thinking about it the, the night before. But uh, at a more sophisticated, a slightly more sophisticated level perhaps than that, what is your essential high-level nuggets of recommendation to families? founders or businesses who might be undergoing a due diligence process in the next year or two? What's the one or two things they should be remembering that you said in a year or two's time? Yeah, I think one is early, (laughs) just as you alluded to. So being thinking about it a year or two in advance, when in many cases, we work with management teams one to two years out to think about what are the questions that a buy side advisor may ask of them. I think the second thing is, Put yourself in an investor's shoes. What would you want to know about your business? And starting to think about some of the documentation uh, and materials that might be relevant to that equation. Uh, You know, in a technical or technology sense, that might be architectural diagrams, product roadmaps, the like, right? So I think starting to get some of those together in almost a pre-data room-like construct, thinking about it from a buyer's lens is incredibly helpful. And then there's various approaches in terms of of getting your broader team engaged, right? And and there's certainly sensitivities to that. And different management teams take different approaches. But the earlier you can get the the broader team involved, usually the better because uh, you're having them think in the same lens that you are about uh, how to re- how to ready uh, ready the business and so those would probably be the, the three things that I I would really encourage and then the last is obviously 
reach out to advisors in the space. They're always happy to just have a conversation of what are the five questions that clients are most likely to ask and therefore how do you get ready? And, and, and that varies a little bit by business and by strategy, but it is a rapid process. It is a unique process, but when prepared right, it actually can be a really uh, engaging and insightful process that's more focused on the prospective value that, you, you know, it's your chance to shine in some ways, right? It's your chance to tell your story about the next chapter of your business. And I think when firms approach it that way, it can be a really engaging process as well. Excellent. Well, time's flown by and I've got a very helpful takeaway from that, which is if anybody asks me about this in the, in the future, then I, do, I will suggest that the, um, they have a conversation with people who, like yourselves who are experts in this because speaking to an expert can often be helpful. And just in terms of the reality of the last 10 years of being in London startups or growth companies or ones doing rounds and all that kind of stuff. Generally, when I've met the founder and tomorrow or next week, the due diligence team are coming in, it's been, oh shit, the due diligence loss are turning up tomorrow. <laughs> you know, better tidy the office up kind of stuff and get the sweeper out and, and all this kind of thing. So it's never it's been much more like, oh my God, I've got to go to the dentist tomorrow than, hey, tomorrow's a great day. I'm going to have great fun. So uh, yes, uh, having someone to help through that process uh, will be invaluable, I'm sure. So before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Right. So, Mark, as I said, time has flown by. It's a fascinating topic. I've learned a lot, which is always good. So if I learn something, I'm sure the audience does too. And you've mentioned Crossleak once or twice and what you do, but maybe just for the avoidance of doubt, uh, you can tell the listeners what products and services you provide and uh, which of them should check you out tomorrow or even today. And that you're obviously a great firm and what do you need to make you even bigger and better next year than you are now? Perfect. Well, appreciate it uh, and appreciate you having me. Crosslink is a technology advisory and solutions firm. We, we specialize in uh, private equity or investment world and their management teams. We have the great privilege of serving hundreds of private equity firms and have conducted thousands of diligence efforts and, and hundreds of value creation efforts uh, working side by side with companies to really deliver on their technology aspirations. And, and we, we focus a lot of our time in functional areas such as product management, cybersecurity, architecture, organizational transformation and the like. The other great joy for, for me and in, in my role is that uh, I get to work alongside a, a, an incredible group of practitioners that are comprised of only been there, done that technologists, uh, people who sat in the seats of CTOs, of CISOs, of chief architects. And it is an incredible privilege to watch them work alongside our clients in their most critical moments. It's that blend of the investor view and the management view that we believe is special about Crosslake. And if we can ever be a service to anyone on your show or, or the like, please don't hesitate to reach out for us just for a chat. We can best be reached at info at crosslaketech.com or you can visit our website at www.crosslaketech.com and just click connect. Uh, and we look forward to the opportunity to connect and serve. Excellent. And in terms of making you bigger and better next year, is there anything you'd particularly like to come your way in 2023? We love working alongside and being a place for great technologists to practice their craft in the most seminal moments. And so for people who've had long careers in technology, 
and are passionate about seeing some of the world's best and maybe worst technology, we are looking to grow our team uh, and to grow our team in Europe uh, aggressively. And so uh, would encourage uh, those to reach out who may be interested in, and uh, to have a chat. Great. Well, that's been a fascinating conversation. I've got a much more balanced perspective on due diligence. And as I say, I'll certainly advise people in the future who've got this upcoming to not just pre-prepare, but pre-prepare by speaking to somebody who really know what they're doing. And your knowledge shines forth and it's a phenomenal number of due deals you have done. So I wish you and Crosslake every success in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.